I have the opportunity to speak to you this morning about the good news of God's impassibility. In fact, I will be trying to persuade you that God is not passionate about you or about anything at all. I can only ask that at this point you hold the rotten tomatoes until the end, and if your judgment says you should throw them anyway, uh, have at it. But before we get there, let's consider this ancient doctrine of God without passions. I want to begin by reading a text of Scripture in Acts 14. Verse 15 is the particular focus, and then I want to introduce to us, and perhaps reintroduce for some who have heard this before, the doctrine of God's impassibility or his passionlessness, and why historically Christians have said this, uh, and what the importance of this doctrine is for our understanding of God. Paul and Barnabas had been identified wrongly by the men of Lystra as the gods Zeus and Hermes come down from Olympus and walking among them in the city. And the priests even led the people out to bring offerings and sacrifices to the apostles. And verse 14 says, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature, or literally, of like passions as you, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. We'll revisit that text in a few moments to see its relevance for this doctrine. It was once a commonplace that God was without parts. It was also a commonplace that God was without passions. The Archbishop Thomas Cramner, the first Protestant Archbishop of Can Canterbury, penned this little phrase that God is without body, parts, or passions. The 39 Articles of the Church of England picked that up as the first article, the first thing they said about God is that he's without body parts or passions. The Westminster Confession of the Presbyterians adopted the same language. The Congregationalists in the Savoy Declaration, the Baptists in the Second London Confession all adopted the same phraseology without modification. All of them, and you could just throw in medieval Catholics and church fathers as well, um, all of them believe that God was without passions. In fact, to say that God was passionate once upon a time would have been a scandalous proposition to any Christian, Orthodox, Roman, Protestants of all stripes. And yet nowadays, uh, it's seldom spoken of, and when it is uh, normally uh, simply to be rubbished, as an arcane and irrelevant doctrine. Divine impassibility simply states that God is without passions. He neither undergoes effective change nor feels the actions of creatures upon himself. Thomas Wynandy gives this succinct summary of the doctrine's basic claims. He says, impassibility is that divine attribute whereby God is said not to experience inner emotional changes of state, whether enacted freely from within or effected by his relationship to and interaction with human beings and the created order. To put it in the words of Isaiah 40, our God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. He is not here with us in the give and take and in the fray, uh, in the uncertainty and the tumult of this world. He is untouched by these things. And I should say even further, unmoved by these things. I do not mean that he doesn't care about these things. We'll make that distinction 
in a few moments. The notion of a passionless God undoubtedly will strike many contemporary Christians as absurd and maybe even repugnant. It sounds to us as if God doesn't care. If he's not passionate about, he can't care about. But therein lies, I think, an intellectual mistake with regard to the meaning of care and intentionality and passion. They are not the same thing. All passion is intentional and caring, but not all, but not all, intention, but not all intention and caring is necessarily passion. How could God be without passions and yet really love us and have mercy and be jealous and be angry with the wicked every day, as the psalmist says? How could God really love us and how could he be genuinely indignant at sin if he is indeed without passions? A significant underlying concern of the classical doctrine of impassibility is to safeguard the fullness and the perfection of God's being. That God is being, not becoming. That God is infinite actuality, not in process and development toward his end. God is the beginning and the end. He's not on the way to a reality that he is not already. That's, the, that's what's underneath of this doctrine. God is the absolute creator upon whom all creatures ultimately depend. And if it turns out that he himself depends upon his creatures or upon any other cause for some aspect of his being, then he would not be the God of all creation, the one by whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. A passionate deity is relativized to the extent he is passionate. He is not then most absolute. Every passable being depends for some feature of its being upon whatever arouses it to new states of affection. A minimally adequate defense of God's impassibility then will need to examine in some detail the unique manner of God's being in order to establish the confession that he is the boundless creator of heaven and earth and all that is in them and is in no wise measured or made to be by the creature. God is not involved with us in a give-and-take relationship in which he does for us and we return the favor and do for him. It's one way. He does for us, universal giver, universal benefactor, in no wise the beneficiary. The benefactor, simply a benefactor simply means the maker of good. Factor is to make, bene is good, and the benefactor is the maker of good. The beneficiary is the receiver of good, the one who receives from another. God is pure beneficence and in no way indebted to his creature. In this talk, I want then to underscore the importance of impassibility as a necessary entailment of God's aseity, his self-sufficiency, and then also of his simplicity that he is not composed of parts. God is being pure and simple, not becoming in any sense and not beholden to a cause of his being. The true superabundance and limitlessness of divine love, and I will say divine opposition to sin, can only be maintained by the doctrine of divine impassibility. If God loves you passionately, and if he hates sin passionately, then he loves you finitely, and he hates sin finitely. Only impassable love and only impassable goodness is unbounded in its opposition to wickedness and unbounded in its love of his creatures. This sheer unboundedness of God's love and justice requires a foundation of passionlessness. 
That being said, we need to spend a little bit of time on language because this still may sound wrong in your ears. Why can't we just say that he is unboundedly passionate? And then we can say uh, everything at once. In order to better appreciate then what impassibility denies about God, we need to get a basic understanding of what passion means and why certain affective states that humans experience, love, joy, compassion, fear, anger, why these are called passions. And here we do need to do a little work in our lexicon, so we'll begin with this. The word passion, is derived from the Latin term passio uh, and or from the Latin term pati. The little root P-A-S or P-A-T is the key. That actually is derived from the Greek terms pathos, pathos, or pasco. These are the Greek terms that are used. The term itself, passio, means to suffer, to submit, to undergo, to experience, or to endure. Most basically, it means to receive something that comes upon you, to stand on the receiving end of a relationship. The word patient actually has the same term. Uh, it has the root pati in it. The patient is the entity who undergoes. So you go to the doctor's office and you sign in on the patient's register, and you might ask the question, why, when you go to see your physician, are you the patient, and you are the patient, some say because you have to wait for a long time and have a lot of patience before you get called. Actually, that's also related. Um, patience is the suffering of the passage of time. What comes upon you? A duration of time comes upon you, ergo patience. And then you are the patient, the patient. It's a name we give you. Why are you the patient? Because you are there to receive operation. The agent is the doer. The agent is the actor who operates. The patient is the receiver of the operation. Pati, pasio, passion, that which is received from another. I've always thought you could make the case at your doctor's office that if you went to the doctor's office and you received later a patient's bill and yet the doctor didn't actually do anything to you, you could make the case that you weren't literally a patient because a patient is a receiver of operatio and you didn't receive any. There used to be a billboard that I drove by on the way to work uh, for a healthcare company that said, we treat people, and then the, the tagline underneath it said, not patients. Allow me a little egg-headedness for a moment. That is literally impossible <laughs> to be treated is literally to be patient to. That's what patient means. In fact, if you wanted to be really abstruse about this, you could say, this is a billboard saying we don't do anything to you. I know, they were going for the human touch. You're not just a, a body to operate on, you're a person. And, and I'm sure they were a wonderful healthcare company, uh, but the, the, the language uh, got a little crazy on the billboard. Um, to be treated, to be the receiver of an action is what patience means, and it's also what passion means. Passion is that which is received by a patient due to the operation of an agent. Every passion is a caused and produced state of being. Every passion is finite, it is temporal, it is made to be, and it is mutable. You know this. Your passions come and go. Sometimes you're angry, sometimes you're not. 
Sometimes you're having those feelings of romantic love. Sometimes that subsides. You fall in love. You fall out of love. You get angry. You don't get angry. Um, your passions ebb they, and they flow, and you know thereby that they are temporal, that they are finite, and that they are mutable. That doesn't mean that they're evil. It just means that they're creaturely. They may be evil, but not necessarily. They're just creaturely. Passion is a received state of actuality. Every passion produces a change in the subject as the consequence of some agent's action upon it. George Kluberton says, passion is the change received from an agent considered as taking place in the patient. Passion is that which is produced in you by the operation of some agent upon you. It is a made-to-be thing. Thomas Aquinas says that passion is the effect, that is the thing produced, of the agent on the patient. Every passion is a cause state of being into which one is moved by the activity of an agent. Moreover, every passion requires a principle of receptivity by which new actuality is received. Stay with me for a moment. You have to be able to be moved in order to be in order to be chained in order to be passionate you have to have the capacity for it it requires that something be able to be actualized in you right now i am i could be potentially angry at you but i'm not actually angry at you right now but if you caught me in the hallway afterward and kicked me in the shins you could act upon me so as to produce passions in me, the feeling of pain in my shin and the emotion of anger in my heart or disbelief or incredulity or you know, <laughs> disappointment in you or any other, all sorts of emotions you could produce in me by acting upon me. Metaphysically speaking, a passion is an accident. By an accident, we don't mean a mistake. We mean um, that which befalls a thing. Ad cadere is where we get accident. It's something that comes upon a thing. Um, my being 5'8 is an accident. It's not a mistake. It's a state of being I have in addition to being this human substance that I am. It's a state of being that comes upon me. That's what an accident is. Every passion is, an, by the way, you have to be composed of parts to have passions of passions are accidents. Every passion is an accident that inheres in a substance and modifies that be, the being of that substance in some way. I can, I can become um, excited, even if I'm not excited at the moment. I can become fearful, even if I'm not fearful at the moment. These are states of being that aren't actually in me right now into which I can move. Change, mutation, development, process, all of that requires that I be finite. If I were not finite, I couldn't move into new states of actuality because I'd already be in every state of actuality. Passion requires finitude. If passion is an acquired state of being that produces a change in me, only a finite entity could ever be subject to passions. Passions can be either good or bad. Others can act upon us in ways that produce joy or sadness, pleasure or pain. Even the term suffering does not necessarily indicate that you are suffering pain. Suffering comes from the Latin compound sub fere, which means to stand below a thing. And we can suffer that which comes upon us. Someone may strike you so as to produce pain in you, and you suffer the passion, a painful passion um, in that case. Um, but you can also suffer good. You can stand beneath good that befalls you. 
We use this kind of language uh, even to speak of pleasant passions, and we use a violent language to describe it. We talk about falling in love. We talk about someone, someone who is in, who's having those romantic feelings as being smitten. In fact, we even might say that someone has a crush. <laughs> and yet I take it that all of these are desirable states of being. All of these are pleasurable. Most mornings I wake up and I think to myself, um, James, avoid being smitten, avoid being crushed, uh, and don't fall. But if it's love, if it's love, bring it on. You know what I'm after? In other words, it's not, su su I suffer pleasure, pleasure or I suffer pain. But here's the thing with suffering. The reason God cannot suffer is that God cannot have states of being produced in him by causes operating upon him. God is not the consequent of creaturely operations upon him. We do not produce his indignation to sin. It is his nature infinitely and unbalancedly simply to be opposed to sin. We do not produce his love for us. It's just his nature to be an, an abounding fountain of love. God is love and God is righteousness and God is justice. These aren't states of being or feeling that we produce in him by our causal operation. This is just who God is. Now God will variously manifest his love over time and space to different persons relative to their moral and spiritual condition. But God's opposition to sin doesn't rise and fall. The demonstration of his opposition to sin rises and falls. He has removed the demonstration of his opposition to sin from you because of Christ Jesus, but he's not less opposed to sin. He has shown you love that he didn't show you before, but he didn't become more loving when he gave his love to you. He simply spread his love, he simply distributed his love, but he didn't get more love, good or bad. I can speak about my love for my wife, which is a passionate love, and this is why it's a passionate love, not simply because of its intensity, which being imperfect as I am, uh, rises and falls, but the reason it's passionate is because I was moved to love her. And you could ask, well, what moved you to love her? In fact, it was her loveliness. It wasn't necessarily that she was intending it. She wasn't trying to move me uh, to be attracted to her. Um, there was just an attractiveness, a loveliness, a goodness in her that stirred my heart. You know, and as a, as a young man or a young woman, sometimes it gives you that funny, it has physiological effects as well, and it gives you a funny feeling in your upper abdomen, and it consumes your thoughts. And I mean, you are, you are moved by this loveliness. The reason my love for my wife is, is passionate is not because it's love, and it's not even because it's intense, it's passion because it's moved. It's passion because it's produced. It's passion because it's a state of feeling that I enter into by undergoing the operation of her loveliness upon me. I am moved to love my wife by the goodness and loveliness of my wife. That's why it's passion. Passions are only so-called because of their manner of coming upon the subject through a process of undergoing and of a reception of new actuality. But if God doesn't need to undergo some change or receive some new determination of being to love, then he can love, but it wouldn't be passion in that case. It would be intense, it would be real, but it wouldn't be, strictly speaking, a passion. 
If one were to possess the virtues of love, joy, mercy, jealousy, and the like without having undergone an intrinsic effective change produced by the action of a causal agent, then those virtues would not be passions in that case. And this is why we're saying that God's love and God's holy opposition to sin are intense, they are real, but they are not passionate. Otherwise, they would be produced, caused states of being. Let's return to this once more. There is nothing caused to be in God. Caused to be is what characterizes everything not God. Maker of all and self-sufficient unto himself, that's who God is. God is not made to be, ergo, not passionate. But this does not mean, just because they're not passionate, that these virtues would be deprived of intensity, vitality, or dynamism. To speak of passionless, this will sound strange to your ears, but... I think it's somebody paraphrasing C.S. Lewis says, it would be strange if God were not strange. It would be strange. Do you know what I'm saying? Try try to put the shoe on the other foot. Um, If God were, if God turned out to be, you know, just like a bigger version of everything else, that would be the strange thing. Um, It would be strange if he were not strange, if he were just a big version of what's common to us as creatures. To speak then of passionless love, joy, mercy, or jealousy means only that these states did not come upon God through a process of reception by which something actualized these new states in the divine being. One person could be passionless, I suppose, because of a lack of love, joy, mercy, and jealousy, a kind of listless indifference, an uncaring, we might say. But another, in the case of the divine being, could be passionate because although he is intensely, dynamically loving, joyful, merciful, or jealous, these states are not the effect of someone's action upon him. In fact, I'll argue in a few moments that only virtues that are not instances of passion can be genuinely unbounded, unchanging, and free in the ultimate sense. Just quickly to that point about freedom. My love for my wife is, in one respect, not free. And what I mean by that is... um, I didn't choose to be moved by her loveliness. I just was. Her goodness compelled me. We might say, I couldn't help myself. I couldn't help myself. There's not a free, it should be free in the sense of generous and and open and free in that sense. But But in one sense, it's not free. I was moved. I was constrained I was laid hold of by her loveliness and moved by it. It wasn't, when I say that I love my wife, um, you know, it's not much of a compliment to say, because of a pure act of beneficence on my part, placing my love upon you, I love you. (laughs) That's that's gonna, that won't fly. Uh, And yet with God, that is in fact how it is. He loves us, but it's not because he looked down and said, oh, you're just so wonderful, I can't help myself, I just have to love you. Rather, his love is pure beneficence. He loves us purely because he chose to do so, not because he was moved by our loveliness. God's love is free. Let's look then briefly at Acts 15, and then I want to look in a place in Job briefly for biblical support for the doctrine. I want to sort of tease out how Scripture affirms this. Uh, about 20 years ago in seminary, I wrote a term paper on divine impassibility in which I took um, the opposite position that I'm presenting to you today. And uh, there, was no, but there wasn't a conference like this to tell me that I was wrong about it, and so I you know, went, went along uh, 
thinking that I had that right. And then over, over time, I began to rethink that, uh, whether I had, in fact. I looked at the confessions. The confessions, uh, when they added the proof text, put Acts 14, 15 as the proof text that God is without passions. And so you open up Acts 14, 15, and you read it in the, well, there was no ESV then, but there was the New American Standard um, or the NIV. And the way the New American Standard reads it, uh, this is the proof text, by the way, for that God is without passions. Men, uh, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven, earth, the sea, and all that is in them. End of discussion. I mean, obviously, God without passions, right? <laughs> it was not obvious to me. I thought there must have been a mistake. How could this text be a support for this notion of a passionless deity? Let's listen to it again in the language of, and this time I will go back to the King Jimmy, uh, 1611. Uh, sometimes it is still more literal, and the language is beautiful. Let's, let's, uh, I'm not a King James only, but I, am a, but I do love that translation. Sirs, why do ye these things? We are also men of like passions with you and preach to you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God which made heaven, earth, the sea, and all things that are therein. Like passions. The word, by the, word, the, by the way, the word nature, which is in most of our translations, is not in the text. That's the word phusis. Paul uses that word very competently in other passages. That's not the word that he uses here. The word he uses is the word homoapathes. You can hear that path in there, that P-A-T uh, root. Hamoi means like, awe is a little conjunction, and then pathes uh, means subject to passions. I think Young's literal translation says, we are men like affected, which is another, I think, very good translation of that term. I think the 1901 American Standard also says like passions or, or something like that, which is a literal translation. And what they're saying is, men, we are men like you, subject to, and this is what I think the passions thing means, subject to the actions of others upon us. That's what creatures are. Creatures are receivers of being. Creatures are dependent entities. Men, why are you worshiping us? We preach to you that you should turn from these vain things. I don't think that Paul and Barnabas are saying, oh, 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 you're confused. We're not the gods of Mount Olympus. <laughs> you know, we're not the Olympians you are looking for. Uh, don't worship us, we're not Zeus and Hermes, because here's the whole thing. That would, that would leave the impression that it would be okay to worship Zeus and Hermes, it's just not okay to worship, you know, mere mortals. But of course Paul and Barnabas don't think that they should worship the gods of Mount Olympus. Let's just get to this really quick. The gods of Mount Olympus, just briefly. Passionate or impassable? A little bit passionate? It is... There's a lot of drama up there on Mount Olympus in the midst. Uh, there are, there are, there are um, jealousies and, and lightning bolts being thrown about and arguments and, and, um, and, ang and anger and fear and, and sexual dalliances with humans. And I mean, this is a, Mount Olympus is an emotional train wreck. That is not where the impassable ones live. In fact, they are like us, passable sort of to the nth degree. And I think his point, is not, his point is not simply, oh, don't worship us, we're men. I think his point is actually don't worship entities which are homoiopathes, of like passions with you. If I can say that there's a text that says you shouldn't worship a, pass a passable entity, 
Here's a text that says don't do that. And in fact, the apostles go on to say, it's vain, empty, to worship passable be beings that are homoeopathies with you. That's a, vain, that's a vain thing to do. Now, why? Now, the second half of the verse, and it took me some time to sort of be satisfied with what Paul and Barnabas are doing, because the second half of the verse says that you should turn from these vain things. I think in the context, the vain thing is the worship of passable entities. Turn from these vain things to a living God, and then listen to how he characterizes God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is therein universal creatorhood. And it sounds like a like kind of pious filler, like this is just a, a phrase, and when Paul talks to pagans, he often refers to absolute creatorhood, the God who made all things and depends upon none. This is a, this is a stock argument when Paul presents the true God to pagans. But what's the point of it in this verse? And I think the point of it here is this. On the front half of the verse, he says, it's vain to worship entities which receive actuality from others. That's what passibilism requires. Rather, worship the one who gives being to all others. And this is what he's arguing. Worship the universal giver of being. Do not worship the receiver of being. If you don't translate a homoepathes as like passions and you just say of the same nature, I think that that exact contrast gets lost because passions means undergoing, submitting, suffering, receiving, and absolute creatorhood means universal giving. This is where the creator-creature distinction lies. Don't worship entities that depend upon others. Rather, worship the one who gives to all life, breath, and all things in whom we live, move, and have our being. That is probably, and, and as it turns out, um, all of those 17th century Puritans and, and Anglicans before them who gave this text uh, as a proof text were uh, more right, perhaps, uh, than I knew when I wrote my term paper. I want to consider another text uh, that supports this notion of God being impassable, and I want to look with you at I want to look with you at Job 22 briefly, and then Job 35. In Job 22, Job is being rebuked by Eliphaz the Temanite, and this is there's it's always tricky. Uh, deriving doctrines from Job's three friends, uh, because many things that Job's three, three friends say are correct, uh, and we know they're correct because uh, Elihu, who is not one of Job's three friends, who's a, who's a preacher of righteousness, says many of the same things, and then Yahweh, in his discourse at the end of Job, says many of the same things that the friends say. But the friends' counsel is, in one respect, wrong with regard to their diagnosis of Job's suffering, um, and in another respect, incomplete or half-baked. Job has, and we're told this later in the text, uh, before he has his encounter with Elihu and then with God, Job has vindicated himself in his own words, and he even ends uh, very badly at the end of chapter 31, in which he says that he would, as it were, issue a subpoena to God, call God into his courtroom, and that he would declare to God all of his righteous steps, and he would, as it were, put God on the witness stand and say to God, why am I suffering? Because I have done A, B, C, and D for you. That's Job in his nadir. That is Job in his lowest moment. His friends pick up on this, and it kind of gets worse as, as things go on for Job. His friends pick up on this, and they oppose what he's saying. Listen to what Eliphaz says. Then Eliphaz the Temanite responded, Can a vigorous man be of use to God, or can a wise man be useful to himself? Is there any, this is the pleasure part, is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous or profit if you make your ways perfect? So if you are such an upright man, do you think that your uprightness obligates God to give you an answer? 
Does your uprightness, in a certain sense, give God something he lacks so that now he's in your debt? That's the question. It's a good question. And I think Eliphaz is correct. But then he, he goes wrong in verse 4. He mocks Job. Is it because of your reverence that he reproves you, that he enters into judgment against you? I suppose it's because you're so good and so holy uh, that you've lost all your children and your goods and your health. Give me a break. (laughs) That's Eliphaz's diagnosis. Verse five is where it gets very problematic. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? And the implication seems to be that while God cannot be helped by your righteousness, he can be harmed by your wickedness. You can't improve him, but you can diminish him. You can't help him, but you can harm him. Now listen to Elihu's response in Job 36. Job 36, verses five through eight. Uh, Very briefly on Elihu, Elihu, uh, he is introduced to us in chapter 32, and he speaks through the end of chapter 37. This is how I understand Elihu. Elihu is the only named human in the book of Job who is nowhere in the book of Job rebuked for what he says. Job is rebuked by his wife, by his three friends, by Elihu, and by God. The three friends are rebuked by Elihu, by Job, and by God. Uh, No one rebukes God. No one rebukes Elihu. I think Elihu is the preacher of wisdom, kind of the opening act, the warm-up act before God appears uh, in chapter 38 uh, and then sort of takes off of what Elihu has been saying. Uh, I think there's no reason for us to take Elihu's words as sort of mixed or faulty counsel. All right, that being said, that's an exegetical point. Elihu confronts Job and his three friends. Listen to what he says in Job, uh, uh, I'm sorry, should be 35, not 36. Job 35, I'll begin at the first verse. Then Elihu continued and said, do you think this is according to justice? That is Job's vindication of himself saying, God needs to give me an answer because I have been a good man. That's how 31 ends. He says, do you say my righteousness is more than God's? The idea is this, I've been righteous and God hasn't given me an answer and Elihu's saying, Job, you're making yourself out like you're more righteous than God. You did your part, now God's gotta do his part. Where is he? You're impugning his character. Do you say you're more righteous than God? Verse three, for you say, what advantage will it be to you? For what profit will I have more than if I had sinned? I mean, if I'm going to suffer, what's the point of righteousness? But there's something insidiously wrong with that way of thinking and it's this. That means that you're thinking of your righteousness as something that God, that puts God in your debt. That's like thinking of your righteousness as something that earns and requires that God reward you. And what it really thinks about God is, I helped God, time for God to help me. That thinks of God in a kind of mutualistic, finite, process, temporal, give and take relationship. Elihu, again. He says, I will answer you to Job and your friends with you. Uh, uh, Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz. Verse five, look to the heavens, look at the heavens and see. Behold the clouds, they are higher than you. Now he's setting this up and what I think he's trying to get after is this. We don't have a kind of give and take relationship with the clouds. There's no cloud seeding back in these days. Um, The clouds are above and they give us shade and they give us rain and the clouds provide for us, but we don't, Return the favor and provide for the clouds. That's what he's saying. Look to the clouds, the heavens. See the clouds, they are higher than you. Um, our relation, we receive from God, as those who stand below the clouds receive from the clouds, but the clouds, and in this case his analogy, and God do not receive from us. Verse six, he says, now I think what he's doing is he's reversing the order. Eliphaz says, 
If you're righteous and if you've sinned, and Elihu says, if you've sinned and if you're righteous, and I think he's starting with the point that was weakest in Eliphaz's statement. He says, if you have sinned, now he's, I, I look at, I, I imagine him like giving the stink eye to Eliphaz right here, because that's what that guy said. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And that could be literally translated, what do you make to be in him? If your transgressions are many, and here I really think he's coming down on Eliphaz hard because that was Eliphaz's whole argument. Are not your transgressions great? Therefore, God has suffered so much from your hands. That's why you're suffering so much from God. And then he looks at, I think Elihu looks at Eliphaz and says, if your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? This is a strange statement. Your many transgressions don't in fact produce any change in God. That doesn't mean God doesn't care about your transgressions. That doesn't mean he doesn't hate your transgressions. It means that your transgressions did not stir up some new state of being in him. If, you, if your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? Just simply put, impassibility says God is not one who is done unto. God's a doer, but he's not a done. Okay? God gives, but he doesn't receive. Then he goes to the righteousness point. And if you are righteous, what do you give to him or what does he receive from your hand? We don't produce pain in him. We don't produce pleasure in him. We don't produce in him. He's unproduced. Absolute creator of all things, self-sufficient, not made to be, but the maker of all. This doesn't mean that your wickedness doesn't matter. God hates your wickedness and God morally approves of your righteousness, but it doesn't change his benediction. He is God blessed forever, not blessed right after you got done blessing him. Um, he is God who is a consuming fire of holiness, as we spoke about earlier, whose opposition to sin could not be hotter than it is. So that God is not in this kind of relationship where he gets and he receives and then he feels obligated or is put into our debt. He says in verse eight, your wickedness is for a man like yourself and your righteousness is for a son of man. In other words, your good deeds and your evil deeds do produce effects in others, namely those who live with us here below the clouds, but they do not produce changes or effects in God. It's, for, it's chapter 41 where God himself says, who has given to me or who has gotten the upper hand on me such that I should repay? God is not in our debt. Many critics of this doctrine say that impassibility means that God lacks vitality, dynamism, and care for his creatures. Jürgen Moltmann once said, of, of impassibility. Is he a God? Is he not rather a stone? I think it was the late Clark Pinnock who said that the doctrine of divine impassibility rendered God a metaphysical iceberg, uncaring, uninterested. This is what we're saying about divine impassibility. Not that God doesn't care. We're actually saying that God couldn't be made to care more. We're saying that God cares with the infinite fullness of his being about iniquity and about righteousness, that God loves with the unbounded fullness of his being, and that God opposes iniquity with the unbounded fullness of his being. The divine impassibility doctrine is not a statement about God not caring, though this is strange, but it is a, let me, let me be a little provocative with you for a moment. There, in a very strict sense, it is a doctrine about God unfeeling. See, but in your mind, caring and feeling go together. But why is that? Why is, let's talk about that for just a moment. We need, to, we need to settle this whole question about caring. Why do you think that passion and care um, or feeling and care 
are the same thing. And, because, and I think the reason we do that is because that's how it is with us. If I'm going to care, I'm going to need to be stirred up. I'm going to need to be, have something. Op- if I'm going to love my wife, I'm, gonna lead, I'm going to need my wife's loveliness to move me to love her. It's true. Once I did not love my wife because she grew up in Tacoma, Washington, and I'm a California kid, and I didn't even know her. You know what I'm after? If I'm going to love this woman, I'm going to need to be moved to the state of love for this woman. The reason that we equate care and passion or care and feeling is because all of your caring about anything is a state of mind and heart into which you have been moved by the operation of something upon you. God stirred your heart by his spirit. The loveliness of some created good stirred your heart by its goodness. Um, if you're a, I, I guess I'm in Florida on the west side. If you're a, if you're a Bucks fan and Tampa Bay, I've never met a Buccaneers fan in my life. I just, this isn't, I've never been down this far. Um, but if that, if that stirs you, there's something, there's something about uh, the good of that game, the beauty of the game. There's something virtuous in it that you esteem and that moves you and compels you. Okay? That's the thing. All of our caring, we, we have to be made to care. Hence, we need to care via passions. But if God already cares eternally with the infinite fullness of his being, there is no need for him to move into a state of caring. Ergo, he cares, but he doesn't need passions in order to get his caring going. Does that make sense? So what we can actually say then is if his care is really nothing but his own infinite fullness of being, um, then what we're actually saying is not that God's a metaphysical iceberg or uncaring. We're saying that he's, he's totally not passionate and entirely unfeeling, not because he doesn't care, but because he is perfect infinite fullness of care and love and justice. It's not lack of intensity. It's the unboundedness of intensity and reality that makes God impassable. For us. When we think about this, this is, this is, we need to say this again, that if God loved you passionately, he would love you temporally, mutably, and finitely. Passionate love of God is bad, bad news. There was a time for about 1,700 years when all Christians everywhere knew that. Um, I, think we're a, I think we're at a good place again to say this. It also means, if we want to talk about our cultural situation, it also means that while our hearts are tossed to and fro, God's isn't. It means that we have a rock and a refuge. If, if, we're, if he's a very present help in trouble, what we need is a God who doesn't get in trouble. What we need is a God who is not blown about, whose purposes and whose being is immovable and is purely and infinitely actual. That's a refuge. That's a rock. We need a God who is not vulnerable, I think was the word used earlier. We need a, we need a God who's invulnerable, but not uncaring, but actually perfect, boundless care and love. This is the good news of God's pure action, of God's, of God's impassibility. I want to make a final point then with regard to this, to this, I want to call it the gospel of impassable love, if I can, if I can use that gospel in the sense of good news. It means that God's love for us is a pure, beneficent love. If the love by which God created the world were a passionate love, then his creation would not be an act of pure generosity. My, my love for my wife is not an act of pure generosity, meaning I love her because she 
stirred up the love within me. It's not purely I love her because I'm the giver. I love her because I receive some good from her. If God's saving love for the sinner were a passionate love, then salvation would not be all of grace. What I mean by that is this. Passions require causes. The things that cause passions are the goods that impinge, or evils that impinge upon those things. And if God loved you in the gospel with a passionate love, then we would have to identify the cause that moved God to love. Then it wouldn't be pure beneficence. Does that make sense? It wouldn't be pure gratuity. It would be love that was first animated and caused by the loveliness of the thing to which he extends his love. My love for my wife is in a very deep respect caused in me by my wife. God's love for you is not caused in God by you. That's the point. Pure grace, the gospel of God's free grace can only be consistently maintained to the extent that his love for the sinner is without passion. Two texts just briefly. The first in Hosea, I'm not going to turn there, but I'm going to just mention uh, the text in 14.4. The book of Hosea, Israel has made herself utterly repugnant and unlovely through her iniquity, um, likened to the wife of prostitution, Gomer, that Hosea takes to himself. Israel is Israel's a prostitute wife, a, rep a morally repugnant and unlovely thing, and yet God, with the bands of love, reaches forth and draws Israel to himself again. And he says in 14.4, he says of his love, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them, this is key, freely, for my anger has turned from them. This free love, I think the point is this. It's not the loveliness of Israel that constrains God's love for Israel. It's the pure gratuity and beneficence of his love given to a people who is in no way deserving. There's nothing about Israel that would stir uh, the heart of God, and yet he loves them, and this is why it's free. It's free because it's impassable. It's free because they aren't the cause of it in him. Second text I want to look at briefly is Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 4, we read of the great love with which he loved us, and what is our condition when he loved us with that great love? What were we? Think of Ephesians 1, 1 to 3. Some of you are saying it. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of the world, even as the rest of mankind, children of wrath, doing the deeds of the prince of darkness. And yet he loved us. Listen to what he says in verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And then there's an interesting phrase. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Literally, undoing is a slight um, commentary. Literally, this is not of you, that's what it says. This, this grace of God is not of you, it's the gift of God. I want to submit that when Paul says that this saving grace is not of yourselves, he rules out not only our works as sources of our salvation, but he also rules out our depraved natures. What he means is this, it's not your depravity that caused his love. Listen, folks, there are many depraved who are left to die in their sins and will suffer eternal perdition, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. It's not our unloveliness that moves his love, it's his gratuity. When he says that this grace is not of you, I think what he means in a very broad sense is it's not of your doing and it's not of your condition. You 
are not the thing that caused or made God to love you with the great love with which he loves you. It's pure beneficence. It's pure gratuity. This is the thing that divine impassibility as an historic classic doctrine is, is really well suited to protect. This pure, boundless gratuity of God, this pure, boundless, holy opposition to sin. Our, state, our, our position is not that God does not care. Our position is that God could not be made to care more than he does, but he rather cares with the infinite fullness of his being. God could not possibly be more loving, caring, or opposed to sin than he is from all eternity. This is the good news of his impassibility. Let's pray. God, you are good and you do good, and you have shown love to us sinners in your son, Christ Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, we bless you and thank you that you are not like we are cast about by the operations of others upon you, but Lord, you do sit enthroned above the circle of the earth and you work your perfect counsel in all things that transpire. Lord, you are indeed our rock and our refuge. We seek no other. We bless you and thank you in Christ's name, amen.